Well, Mother's Day is a great day for us to ask ourselves what is most important. A mom of little ones probably asks that question every day, multiple times in a day. What's the most important thing to do next? A mom of teenagers and dads as well still routinely ask, what is most important? What, what rules are most important here? What discipline is most important? Should we confront this or wait? A mom with kids now out of the house has to reckon with that question of what is most important in a whole new way during those empty nest years. She might be thinking, was that it? Are my most important years done? What is most important now? And those who are married and trying to get pregnant but have thus far been unsuccessful, they'll be asking that question as well in their unique and difficult context. What is most important? The culture around us often communicates, perhaps even in the church as well, that when you're married and in your 20s and 30s, what is most important is children. It would be a temptation to wonder whether God is kind or good or miss something if what is most important isn't ours at this time. Wouldn't it be nice if God told us what is most important? Well, of course he has. He has. But if you're looking for simply the divinely inspired list of priorities, then you'll be disappointed in what we find in the Bible today. We don't have that. We've all seen those priority lists. You know, the rankings of life, different parts of life being ranked in their, in their importance. Maybe you have one yourself. Maybe God, family, work is something you remind yourself of from time to time to get things straight. We seem drawn to such lists, and that's not unique to our time or our culture. Even in days of the Old Testament, long before Jesus, the rabbis debated which commandments got greater priority. After all, there are 613 laws in the Torah, the Old Testament law, 613, and so they broke them into weightier matters and lighter matters. They discussed which ones were the most important or which one was the most important or which one summarized them all and stood as the foundation upon which all others are built. The story is told of one rabbi who once was approached by a Gentile who asked the rabbi to explain the whole law while he stood on one foot. In other words, can you summarize it in a quick amount of time before I teeter back on my other foot. That rabbi beat the man and said that he dishonored God's word. However, when that man later approached the famous rabbi Hillel, Hillel responded to the same question with this. Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. Sort of the inverse of the golden rule that Jesus said later. Hillel said, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Well, that's more than enough introduction and background to what we're going to find in Mark chapter 12 today. It's a brief scene from the last few days before Jesus' crucifixion. 
It begins with that common question, what is the greatest? But it may lead us to a surprising conclusion when we come to really understand what Jesus says. So Mark chapter 12, look at verse 28 and following. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, I see four turns in this brief dialogue between a scribe and Jesus. Well, not surprisingly, we'll, we'll give more attention to Jesus' words in the dialogue. But it starts with the scribes. So first, we see a common question. A common question. Verse 28, one of the scribes asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? A scribe was an expert in the law. Some translations say lawyer. And that's because in those days, there was no separation of church and state. The law of God was the judicial civil law. And so these men were interpreters of the law, teachers of the law, but in some ways, enforcers of the law as well. That means they were very official. They were recognized leaders in Judaism, nationally and religiously. Jesus, of course, is unrecognized. His authority is from above. His license is not among men. He's unofficial. And yet the scribe heard Jesus answer them well, it says. Those who were dialoguing and debating with Jesus in the earlier verses of Mark 12. Because he answered them well, he asked him his own question. And as I said, it was a common question in those days. It was a fairly legitimate question. Matthew's account of the same story says that, they came, he, that he came with this question to test Jesus. Mark's account doesn't make it sound so sinister. In fact, it sounds pretty sincere all the way through. And that's not in conflict, Mark, with Matthew. I mean, after all, we can all have mixed motives, right? There must have been some way in which the man was coming to test Jesus in other ways in which he was coming simply to, to, to talk about this, to, to find out what Jesus thought, to compare notes with Jesus, that sort of thing. It's a different kind of question than the couple of questions that have preceded this one. Those previous questions from the Herodians and the, and the, uh, the Pharisees, chapter 12, verse 13 and following, that question was a gotcha question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? There was no good answer. It was lose, lose. And of course, Jesus responds profoundly. 
But then the Sadducees come, chapter 12, verse 18, and they ask about the resurrection. They build this hypothetical case of a woman who has seven husbands, and who will she be married to in heaven? And their point is to mock the idea of heaven, of an afterlife, of a resurrection to come. Those were trick questions, gotcha questions, and Jesus answered them with verbal jujitsu. With one, he didn't answer their question and just said whatever he wanted to say. And another, he answered their question with more questions to them and then said what he wanted to say. But in this scene that we're in today, Jesus answers the question directly. It's not a dumb question, and it's one Jesus is willing to answer. So on to Jesus' answer then. It was a comprehensive answer. Secondly, there's a comprehensive answer. Let's just read it again. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You might notice in your Bible there are quotes within the quotes. Jesus is quoting first from Deuteronomy 4, and then in the second commandment, he's quoting from Leviticus 19. We should think through each of these commandments on their own before we try to put them together. So the first commandment, the most important, it comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It's what Jews, even faithful Jews today, refer to as the Shema. You have in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, this thing that Jews, even today, recite first thing in the morning and at night right before bed. It's the thing that goes at the beginning and at the end of any prayer service when they're together. And it begins with this foundational premise. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus quotes this premise before he gets to the command to love the Lord your God because they're related, they're heavily related. There is one God. And that God is one. There is not a God for the sea, and a God for the sky, and a God for speeches, like the nations around Israel thought, but there's one God. And if there is one God, then he must be God of all. His authority and his domain is not restricted to a certain realm, a certain place, or a certain time. To put it in our terms today, we would say, God is not the God of Sunday mornings only. God is not the God of prayer closets alone. God is not the God of prayers before the meal. He's the God who is one. He is overall, and hence he gets all allegiance, all devotion. He gets all of us. Do you see how his oneness his exclusivity necessarily leads to that command then. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Rather than try to identify each of those elements in our bodies, we should instead think of them as describing together the totality of our being. 
So rather than try to think of the heart as the emotions or the seat of the will or something like that, or try to distinguish between heart and soul or something like that, no, no, no. Instead, think of this in terms of north, south, east, and west, the whole thing. It's with every fiber of your being. It's with all of your intensity. It's not just with your affections apart from your actions. It's not just in your emotions without your intellect. It's not just in our minds without our emotions. It's not just a feeling apart from a decision. It's not just a relationship separate from obedience. It is all those things together. It is commanded. And yet it's a command to love. Love the Lord your God. God could have said, obey me with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. He could have said, think on me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. But it says love. It's relational. Not just cerebral. Not just conduct. It is covenantal. Love the Lord your God and love him fully. Love him with everything. Love him in everything. Love him in every way. Love him to the fullest. It would seem that it would be enough for God to have said, love me with your heart and soul and mind and strength. Again, the totality of your being. And yet notice the word all repeated for each of those four times. It's all, all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. He's the one. He gets it all, all of us and all of life. That means then that God is life and everything else is assignment. It's context, it's setting through which and from which we get love from God and show love to God. Anything from parenting to jobs, marriages to eating, to recreation or hobbies, all of this is an expression of or an avenue for loving God. That means then that God isn't a priority. He's not number one. He's everything. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. It's what he meant when he talked about slaves or servants or workers doing what they do, not merely for bosses, but as with the Lord's eye upon you and for him. That's what Paul wrote about at the end of Romans 11 when he said, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. We're to love him in everything. The same goes for everything else that God commands of us. Everything else that God commands of us flows out of or flows back into, however you want to look at it, love for him. That's what Jesus meant by saying this is the most important. He wasn't saying, well, if you really have to press me, if you really have to pick one and give up the others, I'd pick this one. He wasn't saying that. He was saying that you're praying. When you do it in obedience to God, it should be thoughtfully, 
overtly, consciously, in love for God, for love for God. In your giving, we don't give out of guilt, we don't give to get, we don't give because we should, we give out of love for him. Our singing, or when we are tempted and we choose not to sin, all of this is to be done in love to God and with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds and all of our strength. Do you see how all-encompassing this is? Do you see how this puts God over everything, in everything, and we get him in and through everything? This means that everything in life is either a tool or an idol. Everything in life, at times, can in varying degrees be considered either a tool for love for God or an idol in the way of God. Now look back to Deuteronomy 6 with me. Let me show you this quotation in context. In context, I think we see something else about this greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. I'll assume that you're all clicking your way there and not flipping your way there. I don't hear pages. Preachers can't say that anymore these days, I guess, with all the scrolling we do. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. There are two verses Jesus quotes. But let's look for some repeated themes around this that might help us understand another nuance to it. In verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word them is all through those verses and the them refers to God's commands. God's words, God's instruction. You're to recount those, rehearse those, remember those. You're to teach them to your children. And together, you're to obey them. You see that there's a word-centeredness to this greatest commandment to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a word-centeredness. It's not just relationship in some sort of warm, fuzzy sort of way. It's not prayer without word. Sure, it's not word without prayer, but there's a word-centeredness in context. It's very clear. And that means then that even our reading and our remembering, our recalling and rehearsing, our instruction of our children, these are to be expressions of our love to God and the means by which we further love him. Jesus could have stopped with that quotation. The scribe back in Mark 12 asked Jesus what the greatest command was, and Jesus gave him this, but then he added a second greatest command, which comes from Leviticus 19.18. So back to Mark, where we see in verse 31, the second is this, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't a random command. Jesus didn't flip through a scroll real fast and point his finger down somewhere. It just happened to be Leviticus 19, 18. He said, that'll do. No, this command heavily relates to the other. One flows out of the other. 
It's not as random as the references might seem. These two are inseparable and yet distinct. They're distinct in that God is the highest priority. So that's the greatest commandment. But if we love him, then we must love what he loves. That's the inseparableness of these two commands. We must love those who are in his image. We must love that which remotely even reflects him. And yet again, they're distinct commands, aren't they? Because we don't love God by loving people. We don't show our love for him in such a way that love for him is lost in our love for other people. Some talk like that. You love God by loving people, but the emphasis is on loving people so much that they're not loving God, they're loving people. They go together. Love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself? That is not a command to love yourself, as you may have heard. That's been an interpretation that goes back as far as St. Augustine in the 5th century. And it certainly had much more popularity in the last century or so, half century, I'd say, of the self-esteem revolution. This is not a command to love yourself, but instead, Jesus is assuming that we love ourselves. He's assuming that we love ourselves. I'm sure some here might say, I don't love myself. I hate myself. Why would he assume that? I don't love myself. But Jesus doesn't mean that we're all completely satisfied with our looks or with our performance or with our past or with our personalities. What he means is that we all want, generally speaking, what's best for ourselves. We all want to be treated fairly, if not kindly. We generally seek our own pleasure. No one eats food that they find disgusting. No one does that to themselves. And even those who do harm themselves really do that in order to have something else that they want. Even those who take their own lives do it to stop the pain. The Bible assumes that sort of self-orientation that's in us all. And the Bible taps into that strong desire and commands us to turn, to turn it outward instead of further inward. What does it practically look like to love others as ourselves? Well, if you read through Leviticus 19, you find some very practical ways in which we're to love others. Some practical examples like honoring parents and providing for the poor and not stealing and not lying and not perverting justice and not seeking revenge and not bearing a grudge. Those are ways in which we love our neighbors as ourselves. Or as 1 Corinthians 13 famously tells us what love is, it is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's love. It's otherworldly, isn't it? And think of how pervasive it should be applied. Think of the many contexts or avenues in which the second greatest commandment must be applied. 
or you could put it this way, think of some common aspects of our lives in which we go about them without any thought of the second greatest command, not being conscious or overt in loving neighbors in the midst of what we do. Your job, for instance, is one. Vocation is an expression, ideally, of love for God and love for our fellow neighbors, not just our closest neighbors in the home, whereby we're providing a check for them to live on and spend, but we're also doing things for people. We're bettering society. We're helping things. We're providing things that people need. For a while, I was a car salesman, a short while. My dad managed dealerships when I was growing up, and so so I'm very aware of and yet slightly sensitive about all the salesman jokes out there, the car salesman jokes especially. There's a way in which you can be an honest, godly car salesman because people need cars, right? People need cars and you can give them an honest deal and still make some money, hopefully. If car salesmen can do that to the glory of God and for the love of neighbor, then so many other jobs as well can. Just think about it. Think of love for neighbor in your job or, or in evangelism. When we tell someone the gospel and they don't know it yet and we plead with them, what are we doing? We're loving our neighbors as ourselves. When we forgive someone, when we choose to bury something, love covers a multitude of sins. When we love those who are different than us or those who are difficult to us. Where do we see that so often? But in the church. Think of loving neighbor as yourself here in this context. It assumes community, doesn't it? It assumes people. Loving your neighbor is not just being good to your next door neighbor or the people across the street. Sure, do that. But think of these neighbors. These are some of your closest neighbors. Not with proximity or geography, but in relationship and time. Love them and help them isn't one way we love our neighbors as ourselves as we help them love Christ more. And one of the ways we help them love Christ more is sometimes by saying things they don't want to hear. We help them and love them by saying things that they don't want to hear when they need that kind of help. It is love. And Jesus says there is no other commandment greater than these. These summarize the whole will of God, all his commandments. They summarize the first tablet of the Ten Commandments and the second tablet. Those which were vertical directly to God and those which are horizontal, more oriented around men. In Matthew's account, Jesus adds this. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We would do well to meditate more on how comprehensive these great commandments are and how great they should be in our lives. And the scribe in the story of Mark 12 actually agrees. He agrees with Jesus. So thirdly, we see a confident approval. A confident approval. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In affirmation, this man paraphrases what Jesus has just quoted. He adds to what Jesus has just quoted with other scriptural references. 
He doesn't just agree with Jesus, but he says so heartily, effusively, confidently. And he even takes what Jesus says and he builds upon it. He adds to it in the right direction. He applies it like this. These two commandments are much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, the sacrifices and offerings of the old covenant, if they have not love, they are nothing. They are nothing without love. To use the language of 1 Corinthians 13, they're like a clanging symbol without love. And this man, even living under the old covenant, had a spiritual orientation to the laws of God. He saw the laws of God as covenantal and relational and personal, not just contractual. You can imagine that he might have had these verses underlined in his scroll. 1 Samuel 15, 22. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. He may have had underlined in his scroll at home, Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Like some in the Old Testament, this man knew that true religion is not about externals, let alone rituals. And this is a good place to stop and to ask ourselves whether we think the same. How do we relate to God primarily? Do we relate to him primarily through the things that we do? Through the things we avoid? Going to church? Perhaps you came from a confession like the Roman Catholic Church. Going to confession would be a means by which you relate to God in external ways. You messed up some things, and now you go and you do this ritual thing, and then for it, you're cleansed. You're clean until the next time or until it builds up enough that you need to go in. There are many ways in which we, even we evangelicals, relate to God through externals. And we should learn from this man, who Jesus thought answered wisely. Answered wisely, he said in verse 34. And yet, something doesn't feel right about the scribe's response. Are you feeling that? As we read through it, as we've been talking about it, are you feeling, well, at least wondering whether we would hear a tone of condescension in his voice if we could hear these words aloud? I mean, did he tell Jesus that he was correct, like he was the teacher and Jesus wasn't? Oh, I know he refers to Jesus as teacher, but that may be saying less than is actually true of Jesus. He might be thinking Jesus is only a teacher. What's he saying? Good job, Jesus. Good job. Nice answer. You get a star in your paper and a smiley face too. There, there. Well, hold that thought and let's turn to Jesus' response. Number four, we see a challenging assessment. A challenging assessment in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's realm of his reign through Christ. It is the reign of God, a realm which we cannot now see, but one day will. It means having eternal life. It means going to heaven one day, 
but even now being citizens of heaven here on earth. The Bible uses words like being saved for those who are in the kingdom. Christians are in the kingdom. No one's in the kingdom who's not in Christ or of him. Jesus preached the message like this back in Mark 1. He said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Come in through the good news. Well, then what does it mean that this man then is not far from the kingdom of God? You know, this can be taken either positively or negatively. In this case, I think it should be both, both positive and negative. Here's the positive. This man was close to the kingdom. I mean, he didn't have the baggage that some others have had around Jesus as we've been studying Mark together. Think of the other encounters with Jesus, others who have shown their hand that they really had some misguided thinking about God in his plan. This man didn't come to Jesus speaking of the wrong-headed messianic expectations of the time, expecting Jesus to be some sort of kingly sort of warrior who would overthrow Rome's rule and provide peace and stability in the land once again. He didn't mention any of that. This scribe didn't have the loveless legalism that so many scribes and Pharisees did in Jesus' time. He certainly wasn't starting from scratch when it came to the things of God. He knew the Bible. He quoted it freely. He's putting the right emphasis on the right syllables. He's close to the kingdom. But he's not in. He's not in. That's the negatively part of the interpretation. When Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom of God, he's saying almost. Almost is a great word to use and to hear when you're a teenager who hopes to outgrow dad someday and mom measures you too and she goes, almost, almost son. Almost is a great word to hear when you're a little guy and you're saving up for something big and mom and dad count pennies and dollars with you and they say, almost, that's good. But almost is a horrible thing to, be, to, to have said if you're a stuntman who's jumping a very big gap. <laughs> the commentators say, oh, almost. Almost is a very bad thing for the person who's running from the tornado toward the storm cellar, trying to get to the storm cellar. And almost they got there but didn't. Think about this important phrase from a few different angles. That phrase, you're not far from the kingdom of God. That implies there is an in and there is an out. And Jesus knows who's in and who's out. He's God. He knows exactly where this man is. This man likely thinks he's in. Jesus tells him he's not. He's close. With those who are outside the kingdom, some apparently are closer than others. That's hopeful. Some are closer than others. Some have more things that will need to be gotten rid of in their thinking and affections even. 
Some will have more things that need to be inserted into the equation than others. Of course, God can move any one of us along that trajectory at any speed that he wants. But there is, further away, closer to the kingdom, and yet those who are almost there are still not in at all. In this case, the B plus is not good enough. What's the old saying? Close only counts with horseshoes and hand grenades. In this case, close doesn't count at all. Not for the whole. And some will remain on the porch thinking that they're inside the house and they'll remain and remain and remain until it's too late. Some of you here are close, but you're not in. You came to a child dedication service today because a family member is having their child dedicated. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. You're close. You're here. Some of you have been coming to church for a little bit. Maybe you got back to church, as you put it. Maybe you're reading your Bible. Maybe you're asking questions about who this Jesus is. You've been doing it for a while now. You're starting to like him. Understand who he is, what it means to believe in him and follow him. Maybe you're beginning to have some convictions about your life, about things you used to do, things you don't want to do anymore. You're close, but you may not be in. This man had all of that and even more. What's the most important thing in all the world? It's not even these commandments that Jesus gave, though he said they were the greatest. They were the greatest commandments. The most important thing in all the world is to be able to answer confidently that question, am I in or out? This man was close, and he was not in. And none of us want to hear at the judgment, almost. We don't enter the kingdom by loving God more, not through obedience, not through loving others. We could never enter the kingdom through those means. Jesus is not giving the man the way into the kingdom. He's describing the ways of the kingdom. The commands here to love God with all heart and soul and strength and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself are too lofty and too all-encompassing all and too penetrating when have you ever in anything loved God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength? When have you ever in any one action or thought loved another human being as much as you love yourself? You haven't. I haven't. Did the scribe even wonder that? If these are the two greatest commands, the sum of the law, did he not ask himself, have I kept them? He didn't ask Jesus. When Jesus says to him that he's not far from the kingdom, did he even ask himself, well, what's that mean, not far? Does that mean I'm not in? This is a scribe. Surely he thinks himself in. If anyone's in, he's in. And he did not ask himself, what do you mean, not far? I'm in, aren't I? Aren't I? He's unconcerned. 
We don't know. We're not told. Mark records no more of the story. There's no response from him, and there's no narrative comment from Mark about this man specifically. It doesn't say he went home sad that day like he did for the rich man. It doesn't say, and he followed Jesus that day like it did for the man who was paralyzed. At first read, this passage can feel so hopeful, so positive and encouraging. At first read, this passage can seem so morally insightful. I mean, what religion doesn't think love for God and love for neighbor is a good thing? But in the end, this passage, with the silence being deafening here, it's almost like Mark left for us a fill in the blank. What, what are you going to do? What do you do next? You're going to ask more questions? You're standing with Jesus. He's talking to you. Imagine, he says, you're not far from the kingdom. Do you feel a helplessness in yourself to cry out to him and reach out for him? to cling to him, to know him, to ask what's missing, to find out what's wrong. Apparently, this man thought that he got whatever he needed, whatever he came for. Perhaps all he thought was needed in this situation was for him to approve of Jesus, to test Jesus, approve him, check, good enough, and he's done. Or perhaps he was, after this, reinvigorated, to go love God and love others more, assuming he could. And perhaps for him, it was all just theoretical, all just theological debate. We always debate this, Jesus. I'm glad to hear you're on my side. That's what I always say. I always say Deuteronomy 4 and Leviticus 19. You're right. Good job. We don't know his heart, but we do know this that apparently he had the commandments without the Christ. He had the commandments, the very best commandments, but he didn't have the Christ. He asked nothing about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this is what Jesus will talk about next. Himself, his identity, and his mission. You see? No one dared ask him any more questions. The end of verse 35, and then end of verse 34, and then verse 35 as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? We'll see that next week. He asks his own question. It's about himself. He's the Christ. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. And he came not just to teach, not just to prioritize laws, but more importantly, to die. This is only a few days before his death, where he'll not just die, but he'll be a ransom for sins, a payment for people like us, he had to die. More was needed than just moral instruction, moral insight. Because we haven't lived up to the morals God has given us. We haven't lived up even to our own standards. None of us have. None of us think we're all good 100%. We're batting a thousand on this thing called life. We know we fall short. Our people... People around us know we fall short, and even more, God knows how short we fall. But Jesus came for this very reason, and he died a death as a substitute. In our place, condemned, he stood. But not just a substitute for death, but he gives us substitute righteousness. We call it imputed righteousness. It's like it's injected into our account 
And God looks at us if we're in him. If we have faith, we've trusted in this Christ who dies and is righteous, then we can believe that our account has been removed of all the guilt and it has been replaced with all of his righteousness. No one in this world has ever loved God like they should or loved people like they should, but Jesus did both of those perfectly. He loved his God with all heart and soul and mind and strength. He loved his neighbor better than anyone. He gave his life for all his neighbors. That can be ours. We can be saved. We can enter the kingdom. And if you go another way, you can be almost, but not in. It's put like this in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin. That is Jesus. He made him to be sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God in him. You see, replacement. Or 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That good news, that gospel is received simply through faith, not by earning it. It's not when we have loved him enough or when we've been loving enough to others. So are you in? Are you in? Or are you just close? Have you come to Jesus interested? Willing to approve of some things, he says. Yeah, there's a man like that in the story. He was close, but he wasn't in. Have you come to this place right now where you leave here reinvigorated to try to love him harder and love others harder? You're close, but you may not be in. Are you the kind that loves to talk about religion? Doesn't mind going to church? It's all very intriguing to you. It's theoretical, though. It's just theological. It's just an inquiry. It's just a curiosity. Well, you're close, but you're not in. Let me end with a couple of quotes. Listen to the old Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who so eloquently put it. Like this. Your best works are bad since you do them with the motive that you may be saved by them. Selfishness, therefore, is at the bottom of them all. Thou hast never done a good work in thy life. Thou hast either spoiled it by thy selfish motives before it, or by some carelessness in it, or else by some vain, glorious pride after it. While you feel that you can save yourselves, you will attempt it. But when you can do no more, then you will fall into the arms of your Savior in a blessed fall that will be. On another occasion, Spurgeon said, The gospel is so simple that men cannot believe it is true. If I were to bid you to take off your shoes and run from here to York and you'd be saved, why, you would do it at once. But when it is nothing but the words, believe and live, it's too easy for proud hearts to do. God has made the gospel too plain and too simple to suit proud hearts. May God soften proud hearts and make you receive the Savior. Or as John Bunyan put it a couple hundred years before Spurgeon, he said, run, John, run, the law commands 
but gives you neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids you fly and it gives you wings. Would you believe that? If so, would you talk of it to others? Would you instruct it to your children? Would you know and believe that that gospel not only saves but transforms? And in light of that amazing grace that gives wings, love him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Only the gospel can forgive all the times we haven't loved him as we should and haven't loved others as we should and can give us the power and the ability to actually begin to love him with all heart, with all soul, mind, and strength and to love neighbor like he loves them. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your help to do that as Christians. We want to love you more. We want to be more thoughtful about it, more passionate about it. We want it to affect our singing here as a church. We want it to affect our relationships with each other. We want it to Lord, grow our power to forgive, our capacity to love. We need your help. And we pray for those who are close but not in. We pray for those perhaps that we'll spend some time with this afternoon on Mother's Day. Give us boldness to talk about the kingdom, not sheepishly but joyfully and boldly. Lord, we pray for those here who are not yet Christians. We pray they would enter in through faith and repentance. We pray they'd come to the end of themselves, to the end of their trying, their morality, their working, their striving. And they would hear Jesus' invitation. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come and I will give you rest for your souls. Our sin is great. It's great indeed and beyond our knowledge. But we know this, Lord Jesus, that your grace is greater than our sin. Help us to sing of that now with wonder and joy and faith and thanks to you. Amen.